to be at a court and witness a perpetrator of the Liberian Civil War, especially uh, in the role, the major role that he played, it was a wild moment. And the Liberian community was really excited. What that trial did was it actually reinvigorated the hope for justice for, for Liberian war victims. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All right. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Asymmetrical Haircuts supported by JusticeInfo.net. I'm Janet Anderson. And I'm Stephanie van den Berg. Today we are tackling one of the fruits of universal jurisdiction, the explosion in the number of trials all over the world that deal with the horrors of the first Liberian civil war. It essentially spanned the 1990s and a quarter of a million people died. These trials are a real phenomenon. Up until recently, we'd only had the Liberian president, Charles Taylor, at the special court for Sierra Leone, where he wasn't tried for anything he actually did in Liberia. We've got now Finland, where uh, Gibril Masakoy is on trial for murder, rape and using child soldiers in Liberia while he was a commander in the Revolutionary United Front, the RUF. He wasn't prosecuted by the special court before because he was one of their insider witnesses. Also this month in Switzerland at the Federal Criminal Court in the city of Bellinzona, we have the trial of Aliu Kosha a former commander of the United Liberation Movement of Liberia for Democracy, an armed group that we may be better known by the uh, acronym of ULIMO. Kosha is the first Liberian to be put on trial for alleged war crimes committed during the first civil war. And further back, we have Jungle Jabba. That was his nom de guerre in the United States in Philadelphia. He was convicted of lying on his asylum request. So immigration fraud, basically, about being a commander in Ulimo, in the rebel group, and how he was responsible for murder, torture, sexual slavery, child soldiers. To examine this trend of universal jurisdiction trial for Liberian crimes and to give us insight in how these cases are playing back home, we are joined by Emmanuel Marchand from the Swiss NGO Civitas Maxima. Hi, Emmanuel. Hello. Very happy to be with you today. Emmanuel is the head of the legal unit and senior legal counsel, and that means that she's kind of the legal strategist, and she'll tell us how much work goes into the research and development of these cases and bringing uh, suspects under the attention of local governments and law enforcement, and what kind of advocacy she needs to do to push them forward. And we also have Massa Amelia Washington. She's a former commissioner of the Liberia Truth Commission and a former award-winning journalist. Hi, Massa. Hi. Hi, guys. Massa observed the Jungle Jabba trial in her current home in Philadelphia, and we're going to be asking her about that also about the TRC results and maybe there are some moves towards maybe some pressure towards war crimes tribunal in Liberia how this new rash of prosecutions is being seen by a new generation you know the new generation who didn't actually experience the civil war themselves but first we're going to go back to Emmanuel and can you explain a bit to us the cases that are happening and what role is Kivitas uh, Maxima playing in them so I would say that everything started by the meeting of two persons. So Anna Werner, the actual director of Civitas Maxima, 
and Hassan Biriti, who is um, the director of our sister organization, the Global Justice and Research Project. So Alain was a prosecutor of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and he met Hassan, who told him about the lack of accountability in the neighboring country, Liberia, and the fact there have been two civil wars and nothing happened. And Anna also, in mind, his experience in Cambodia, where he was a lawyer for, for the victims of the Khmer Rouge regime, where in Cambodia, the NGO had an important role in the documentation of, uh, of the war. So you had one NGO called DCCAM, who uh, years before the, tri the, the tribunal was set up, documented, preserved the evidence. And thanks to this, those evidence preserved, the trial were possible to happen. So they discussed and they decided, well, even if there is now no political will in Liberia to prosecute international crimes, we have to preserve those stories. We have to collect this information because maybe one day something will be possible. And when we started the documentation process, we realized that some of the perpetrators identified were in Liberia and nothing was possible to do. But some of them were abroad because they have been like a refugee or they travel. And then we realized that there is something to do. And we decided, okay, let's try to use whatever tools is possible to bring justice to the Liberian victims. Emmanuel, you talk about any means necessary. Something that strikes me from this kind of way of approaching it is that, for example, we've got uh, immigration fraud. We've got people who aren't necessarily Liberian, but played a, a role in the Liberian civil war. So, I mean, really... You're looking for any possible chink, any possible way forward on these cases? This is exactly what, what, what is happening. There is no justice for years and years to civil war. Is, is, it, is it not? Let's try to do something new. Let's try to, yeah, to use any tool. So we started with extraterritorial cases. So we know now that most of the European and Western uh, countries can prosecute international crimes if the perpetrator of the crimes either on their territory, like even if the crimes happen abroad, like I'm very summarizing it. So this is how we started with our first case, like it's um, in September 2014, we had Martina Johnson arrested in Belgium. Then we had Adi Okosia in November 2014 in uh, Switzerland. Then we had Agnes Taylor in the UK in June 2017. And we had Kundid uh, in uh, France in 2018 and Gibril Massacre in March uh, 2020. So this is one of the tools we use, extraterritorial jurisdiction. And then, as you mentioned, we use also immigration case. We all know that when we go to the US, we all have to fill in these small cards that say like, have you ever committed war crimes? And you say yes or no. And it seems very silly, but this is what uh, basically was the idea to be used because fraud, immigration fraud is a crime in the US. So this was used to trial Jungle Jabba and uh, Thomas Weyu. And I think Massa will, will discuss that in more details. But it was for us like another way to try to, to, to bring a case in uh, um, regarding Liberia war. And of course, for those immigration cases, the first one were a bit doubtful, like because it's still an immigration case. But to prove the offense, we had to flew uh, uh, witnesses and victims to um, the US to talk about the reality of the war crimes that happened. And, um, and for us, it was also important to know 
this uh, would this have an impact for the victims and the witnesses? Would they see that this as an immigration cases, or will they feel that as just like a um, criminal case, and that they feel that they have some redress? So this is something that we had a really debrief with the with the victims and the witnesses, and for them, just the opportunity to stand in front of a judge and to tell their story, those was a form of reparation, even if it was an immigration case. And I think um, for us, uh, what was so important is not only to, to bring those cases, but to make sure that the affected communities were aware of what was going on uh, in other countries. And this is where we make sure uh, that you, we had journalists, Liberian journalists who are present during the struggle and who are present and we try to do outreach campaign to bring back the reality of those cases abroad back to Liberia. Massa, when you observed the Jungle Jabba trial in Philadelphia, how did you see your role? And, and can you say something about how it felt uh, to see him in the dock and how the Liberian community, both in the US and at home, uh, experienced the trial? It was actually a surreal moment. The reason is that, um, like you said, I worked as a journalist for many, many years before the Liberian Civil War. And then I also worked as a journalist at the time of the Liberian Civil War. And I cover all factional territories. I was lucky to have reported from all territories of all of the warring factions. And uh, and we know the struggle that Liberia is having with the culture of impunity, with the country not being able to address um, justice for victims. So to have lived and see the atrocities and, and as a journalist, report on the atrocity, and then also as a truth commissioner to actually go back and revisit the atrocity and relive the issues. But then this time to actually investigate what happened, come out with recommendations, and then nothing happens in terms of accountability. But then to come here where all of us have sought refuge. And I say all of us because we have perpetrators in our midst who have also uh, migrated to the West like, you know, victims and also uh, families of victims, like people like myself. So to be at a court and witness a perpetrator of the Liberian Civil War, especially uh, in the role, the major role that he played, it was a wild moment. And the Liberian community was really excited. What that trial did was it actually reinvigorated the hope for justice for, for Liberian War victims. And when I when I went to the trial and when I walked into the courtroom, actually, for a moment, from the moment I parked my car walking into the building, it didn't seem real. It still didn't seem real. But as I walked into the courtroom and I saw this victim sitting in the docket, I'm like, oh, my God. And at that moment, my faith was restored, actually, in the international community because one of the issue we've had is that Liberians felt abandoned. Liberians thought that after um, after the, the work of the TRC, the international community will remain vigorous. For some reason or another, maybe um, Liberians tend to think that the international community should solve all of our problems, but then we have had a crisis of the magnitude of the civil war in Liberia. Of course, then you would think that people have some some justification to expect that when it comes to the issue of of, of, of of human rights for war victims that our international partners will be more forthcoming 
uh, you know, but that was didn't really happen in the case of Liberia. So the trial actually has reinvigorated hope in Liberians that this is possible. And as I sat in the courtroom, one word just came to mind all the time, and that was accountability. And as I left, when I left and I engaged the community and other friends of the Liberian community, and every time they were trying to define accountability, and because there were some Liberians who were saying, well, okay, he's been tried, but he's he's not been tried for what happened in Liberia. He's not been tried for crimes he committed in Liberia. He's been tried for his immigration of fraud that's taking place here. And then I will go back and try to dissect the entire trial. And I said, but yes, but look, it's because of his war crimes that's in Liberia. That's why he's going to be convicted. And when he was convicted, and I said, listen, if it was not for for X, Y, there would not be a Z. And having victims, actual victims, flown over here in court to testify was extremely compelling. Is there, therefore, do you think a sense that now we can look back and that we can do something? I mean, is are these trials really forcing a, a change of opinion amongst the broader Liberian community? Yeah, absolutely, it has. In the first place, what it did was it, it's actually broken that cloud of invincibility that surrounds perpetrator. It's because nothing has been done for so long. And in the case of Liberia, you see many of the major perpetrators and warlords are actually government officials. They are actually leaders of the country. So victims have felt very, uh, you know, uh, um, they have not been happy. They think they're not going to get, uh, you know, justice. So to actually see this cloud of invincibility taken away from, from, from perpetrators in this lot says a lot. And then also at this time, what it did was it actually expanded the um, the argument for a war crime school for Liberia. So even those Liberians who were sitting on the fence before, who didn't think it was possible for so many reasons, they have now joined the fight because they think it's possible now. It's more possible now. That's how Liberians feel. They think that a war crime school for Liberia is more possible than imagined. And this new issue of Gabriel massacre being tried, portion of his trial is going to take place in Sierra Leone and also in Liberia. That is a new high for the, the extent of, of the hope that Liberians now have for justice for war victims. So actually, this is a new day. It's a new day for Liberians. Emmanuel, I wanted to ask you about the changes these trials have made for local partners and how the new generation in Liberia is reacting to that. As Massa said, like we really so a shift of paradigm in Liberia. It's as if the, the justice needed to get out of Liberia to come back in Liberia. And this is also thanks to people reported about the trials that the discussion reopened in Liberia about justice. And we saw like really it started by the radio, starting discussion about it, like with the first trial, okay, discussion about, but this is possible. So if it's possible abroad, why not in Liberia? And for us, it, has, it had a direct impact in terms of security. Like at first, the documentation process was really hidden. 
And more and more now we have people coming forward even publicly about crimes uh, that have, they have suffered. Like we can do outreach openly in Liberia. We had um, the Flomo Theater, Theater troops going in the different countries of Liberia to discuss the Jungle Jabba trial, for example. And uh, the fear has shifted from the victims to the perpetrator. And we can see that the change also in uh, the political uh, position. And uh, we had first like no discussion about accountability. Now it changed to, well, if you have justice, but what about peace? So it seems that now the, the, the former perpetrators try to, to kind of uh, trade uh, justice for peace. And we are here to remind them that it's not an option. Like Liberia has international obligation to prosecute international crimes. And concretely, what we saw also is the start of cooperation of Liberia with our trial. Like they, Liberia for the first time allowed foreign authority to investigate war crimes in Liberia. Uh, so this was a few years ago, it started like that. And now we have like this uh, groundbreaking case where part of the Gibril massacre trial will be heard in Liberia. This is, this is, uh, this is really incredible. And um, we are very grateful that, that there is this change. And now I think since 2018, like we have seen like also like, um, uh, different conferences being built. And I think the last step uh, was in uh, 2019. Uh, it was like the, 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 the Bar Association draft a bill for the setting up of a war crime court in Liberia. And so it's talked with the COVID situation and everything, but there is really like a, a, we saw this huge movement taken by, by the librarians themselves, like seeing what is happening abroad. And now like it's important and maybe now it's time to do something in Liberia. Can I also ask you, Massa, to help us kind of spool back a little bit, because we've mentioned already that uh, you were a commissioner on the uh, TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That did a huge amount of work. I mean, four years worth of intensive work, hearing from all kinds of different witnesses about what happened. Um, I know part of the recommendations were for a war crimes tribunal, which hasn't happened yet. Um, and there were many other different recommendations. But could you just give us a bit of an insight into how that TRC was received at the time? I mean, did people actually want it to, to happen? Or were they a bit annoyed by what you were doing? Or, you know, how, how did it feel in Liberia doing it? Uh, Liberia is polarized on all different fronts, on the ethnic front, and since the war happened, you have Liberians who are some Liberians are still loyal to the former factions and the former, um, you know, warlords. And then you also have Liberians being polarized on the political front. You have Liberians who will support a particular president, for example, or a particular government, for example. And then you have civil society on the other hand that wants something, something else. So we operate within that atmosphere of massive polarization of the country and and then also Liberians who are like at the extreme end of the poverty line they really didn't think a TRC would serve their interests because the issue was well our families have been killed or our breadwinners have been taken away from us how is the TRC going to help a woman who has eight children feed her children whose husband has been killed how is the TRC going to help a young girl whose entire family was killed and she was a bushwife you know, how is it going to help her 
pick up the pieces of our life and move forward. So we had that issue to deal with. Then we had the issue of warlords now being the new leaders of, of the country, they're in the parliament, they're in the, the administrative portion of government, they're making, they're making legislation, they're making laws and stuff. Obviously, they're trying to protect themselves. So you had those group of people who were actually doing everything to undo the TRC process. And then, of course, you had on the political side, some politicians who uh, felt politically it will embarrass their, you know, their political uh, ambition. So here we were operating within this chaotic frame set of the nation. It's like, I think what has impeded the implementation of the TRS report is that all Liberians have not gotten to a point where they decide that, you know what, we need to do this so our country can move forward. In other societies, like Sierra Leone and other places, they were able to get to a point where they found a middle narrative. So even if you were left or you were right, but at the end of the day, people, I think people sat down and said, you know what, at the end of the day, let's find a middle ground. And that middle ground was, let's do this, let's bring justice to victims, and then hopefully this will help the healing process. So Liberians were unable to do that for a long time, and we operated within that. And I would say to you guys, we are also Liberians. Commissioners are also Liberians. You, you get my point. So it was a struggle. It was a struggle in terms of just trying to hold this process together, just trying to do a fantastic work and trying to do what we thought was best for the country. So the strategy we used from the beginning was that from what we saw and from advice that we got from other uh, commissioners and senior staff who work on other TRCs, they said, look, the process with Liberia is so monumental. The issues are so vast. You will have to narrow yourself and focus on what you think you can do best that will help your country move forward. You may not be able to do everything and you may not be able to do everything best, but focus on those things that will be important to help your country heal that you can do best. I have a kind of a personal question. How did you find yourself on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Because it doesn't seem like a really obvious move for, for a journalist. Usually we see NGO people and former lawyers. And how, how did you end up on this commission? Actually, I had no idea. The only TRC I had followed at the time was the South African TRC, because, you know, it was the groundbreaking TRC. And I didn't follow other TRC processes after that. So I didn't even follow when they even drafted the legislation for the Liberian TRC. I was here trying to pick up the pieces of my life, starting my life all over after I came into exile. But I received a call from a, a student leader of a high school one Saturday, and he said, is this uh, um, Sister Massa Washington? I said, yes. He said, you the journalist? I said, yes. He said, Sister, my group, the students, we got together. He said, they're asking for for Liberians to nominate people they want on the TRC. He said, sister, we're sending your name because we saw the work you did. Uh, you are fearless or you, you, you know you're smart. That's what they say. It's not me saying it. So they say, we want someone like you to represent us. The students are sending your name in. And I said, but who are you? But anyway, that was a long story. And I said, but who are you and stuff? He said, sister, we are sending your name. And I said, no, I don't think I want to do this because I was also disillusioned with Liberia at the time. I survived the Civil War and I went through a lot. So I was not ready to engage that country. I was trying to pick up the pieces of my life in the great United States of America. I wasn't looking to be bothered with Liberia, okay? But then this student called me and I said, you know what, let me think about it. And to my almost, almost shocker, my 
younger brother who was a student leader for another school, he called me and said, Sister Massa, we just send your name in. The students just send your name in. And then a female called me, one of the market women that I work with in Women Advocates, she called me one morning and said, they said we should send the name of women in and my daughter, we are sending your name in. So cut a long story short, I got nomination from Liberians in the community, from civil society members and other people who saw my work, who knew my work. And then it was a, a newspaper editor, a guy, who was editor of one of the papers, not the paper that I worked, but a sister paper. He called me one morning and said, listen, I am sending your name and you need to be on that TRC, he said, because I know you, you don't compromise the truth. And he said, you're stubborn, but you're stubborn in a good way. He said, we need somebody like you. And that's how I got on the TRC. <laughs> Well, you sound like you have this amazing range of connections, and I believe even now um, you you work very widely across the Liberian community outside of the U.S. So taking all of that experience into account, Massa, what's your realistic view? Will there be ever a war crimes tribunal in Liberia? Actually, um, when it comes to the issue of war crimes for Liberia, my colleagues have duped me misoptimistic is because I'm optimistic about it for several reasons. One, I really want it to happen because I know it will help Liberia. Two, I'm a community leader. I need to provide hope for my people. I cannot be a community leader and then, you know, give them doubt. I need to encourage my people, not in a, in a false way, but encourage them. And then also I see it happening. Like the Chinese will say, every joining begins with us. Every 1000 joining begins with a single mile. What has happened with the trial of Jungle Jabbar, Tom Wuyu, what's going on with Alio Kosai, what's going to happen with Martin and Johnson, even with the Agnes Taylor trial, okay, even though hers didn't go into a conviction, but it was still a huge thing to even arrest the former wife of Charles Taylor. It was big because none of this form of accountability happens in Liberia. So you can see how it's inching more and more and more towards our goal of saying a war crimes code for Liberia. So I would say to you, yes, it may seem difficult, but it is no longer an impossible dream. This dream is possible. And Emmanuel, are there more universal jurisdiction cases on the horizon? What do what does Kivitas Maxima have cooking? We have been working for since 2012, so we have we have more coming, <laughs> I would say. But but that is, you know, like uh, there is cases that are already started, like the Martina Johnson, uh, the Kundi cases in France. Uh, we are waiting for the uh, for the for the the appeal of the the closing order. But we are expecting a trial for the next year or also. We we hope like you know, in 2022 to have a, like a, a trial in France. There is more coming. We are here also to support uh, our librarian colleagues. Also, if there is a, for the establishment of the war crime court, providing support. If there is a, a will for for this for this court. Thank you both very much for uh, filling us in on all the details of all these different cases and uh, what the mood is across Liberia and in the greater Liberian diaspora. Um, I'm sure there's something that we've missed uh, in terms of what we asked. Massa, is there something that we've missed? Yeah, definitely. Uh, what I want to say is that um, you had asked about the TRC and what was happening with the commission at the time. Like I said, we realized that it was a monumental tax and there were a lot of issues surrounding how this job was done. So. Um, what we were able to do extremely very successfully was that 
we were able to implement all major framework of the TRCs. TRCs have standard procedures of operations. Like for example, you must you must have investigations, you must have statement taking, you must have hearings, you must do your compilation, and you must present a report. The Liberian TRC was able to do all of that. And also in our process, we look at everything and we say, you know what, we must establish, if nothing else, we must establish the truth of what has happened in Liberia. So the truth telling was a big part of our process. Every commissioner was dedicated to to unearthing the truth, what what happened in Liberia. And it, it, it remains one of our biggest pride because even now, even as major perpetrators who um, will actually criticize the TRC, but none of them have come out to say the TRC lied. I didn't do this, I didn't do that. It's lie, we don't know where they got the information from. So at this point in time, there's not a single person who has been named by the TRC who has come out to refute that. So that is a big plus for a situation like Liberia that is so polarized. And then also we introduced a groundbreaking project with the TRC diaspora project. This was the first time that a TRC was systematically engaging its citizens outside of the home country. We had a vigorous program, we had outreach, we had statement taking, we had um, hearings, the state of Minnesota actually, uh, or the state of Minnesota granted a whole week to the Liberian TRC as they named it the TRC of Liberia Week. The Lieutenant Governor and all of her officials were there. So this TRC has actually raised the bar for how TRCs would not engage the citizens outside of their home country, because we know that the Liberian war did not start from Liberia, it started from the United States. So the Liberian war started from here and it came there. And so it was only expedient that the TRC come back to the origin of the source of the conflict. And we know that a lot of perpetrators are also seeking refuge in the West, in the United States, in Europe, in other places. So it was very important to engage the diaspora community. So as we move forward in trying to consolidate how we want this new Liberia, a Liberia of justice and accountability, so that diaspora Liberians are also a part of this, because diaspora Liberians from time immemorial have played a very important role in what happened to the country. And I'm proud to say that I was the chairman of the diaspora committee. <laughs> Emmanuel, is there something that you'd like to add that we've missed out? Uh, yes, you just like to, to react, of course, to Massa. Uh, I just wanted to say, like, even if the recommendation of the TRC has never been implemented, the TRC report is one of the main tools that we are using in building also our extraterritorial cases. So even if this is primary purpose was not fulfilled, like the, the TRC report is really still used for accountability purpose. Another question that we always like to ask uh, our contributors is what are they reading at the moment? What's on their bedside table? What maybe they're watching on some streaming service because we're all in lockdown and we're spending hours watching things or what they're listening to. Um, maybe your cat has an answer as well. Emmanuel can hear them in the background. But uh, what exactly are, are you reading at the moment? Oh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm reading uh, a lot of uh, poetry. <laughs> I think it is, and I'm uh, like for, for those who know, I, I, I'm reading an anthology uh, prepared by uh, Leopold Sedarsengor. So this is this is what I'm I'm reading in this uh, confinement period. <laughs>
And what about you, Massa? Is there something you can share with the audience that, that you're uh, delving into at the moment? So right now I'm reading, I'm reading Saigio. I just got my copy from uh, Barnes and Noble. It just arrived last night. It's five. I sent for five copies. This is the first novel by a Liberian journalist, a younger colleague who I helped to mentor, who has written her first um, book. And this, she's from the Madingo tribe. And this is about uh, women, uh, a young girl growing up in the Madingo tribe. And you know, with all of the stereotypes, um, she's not educated. She's she's struggling to go to school, and she's dealing with the issue of of marriage, and you know all those stereotypical issues that plagues like uh, women, especially in the uh, typical African uh, society. So Sajio is a uh, she's she's a she's a feisty girl. She's very smart. She's educated. She's trying to break away free from this uh, burden of all these stern traditional uh, uh, beliefs and whatsoever, and. Uh, the book is just came out and I'm trying to uh, support her. I'm trying to support her. She's a young Madingo Liberian journalist and I'm trying to support her. So what I'm doing is that I've ordered 10 copies of her book that I'm going to be presenting to other females, like some colleagues. I might be asking some of you to send your mailing address so I can also send your copy of CGO. And I'm asking as I mail a copies of this book, I will also be asking my colleagues to please purchase one copy in present another strong woman so that way they can read the story of Saigeo. I can see we've already got uh, a request in from Emmanuel. Um, maybe you'll hear the, the pinging on the recording. She's saying she wants one, please. So you've already got your first, uh, your first order in, Massa. Um, we always ask these questions at the end of our podcast, and one of them is also something you can't really prepare for, and that is... Um, what is something that you or a mistake I guess you made in early in your uh, career in your life that you learned from or uh, what you changed your mind on and that's basically we do that in the spirit of embracing uh, mistakes and changing your mind so uh, Massa is there anything that you used to really think this is it and then actually um, you learn as you grow older and you learn from your mistakes and I'm one of those who you know I, I don't like regrets I hate regrets. So I learn from a mistake. If I made a mistake, I'll go back and review that mistake and make a commitment to myself not to make that mistake again because I hate regrets. And I think, you know, initially in my career, I think I was a little, a little bit naive. And, and, and especially with our work on the TRC, we look back now and say, you know what, even amongst the commissioners, we had sometimes unrealistic expectations. We look back and we say, you know what, we had some unrealistic expectations. If we had to do this work again, we'll do it a little bit differently. Not with the truth telling, we're not going to compromise the truth telling, but some of the strategies and some of the, um, you know, some of what we did would have been a little bit different. So uh, having unrealistic expectations and then and sometimes having too much of an expectation can also impede um, the good intent of your work. And, and, and we see that some of that is coming to play. And me as an individual, I've learned from that. And what I've also learned is that initially I was this person who saw good and bad, black and white. But my experience as I move on in life, I realize now that there are gray areas, that there is a color called beige and off-white, that you don't just have white, all white, you just don't have all blacks, you have that middle point. So in my life right now, 
I move more towards a middle perspective where everybody can be heard. The left can be heard, the right can be heard. And what is the middle point that everybody can agree with that can help us move on peacefully and forward without marginalizing the voices of everybody else, whether you're opposition or not. So I'm beginning to be more of a middle or middle perspective person now because I realize that it's easier, you know, it's, it's better and it's easier when you can you can convince your, your opposition, but through uh, persuasive means and through working together amicably to reach a solution that you want rather than you being the strong person all the time, you being the person who, oh, you're so truthful, you're so honest and everything, but guess what? Everybody have the version of what they think the truth is. So you must be mature and wise enough to sit down and say, okay, how does my version of the truth, which I think is the right version, however, how does it fit in with that version? How do we, how do I push it closer and closer to the center? And, and I learned that from my, especially from my work on the TRC and the backlash from the TRC, I learned that. And it's made me a better person professionally. Thank you so much. That sounds like great advice. Um, Emmanuel, is there something that you, a similar thing that you can say that you changed your mind on and that you really learned from uh, that helps you now? I, I think is when I started to work uh, on international justice and international criminal law, I really also has the vision of uh, the good and this only one narrative about truth. And I think like it's a bit like that. I quickly you understand in this situation of mass crimes that the perpetrator of someone is the hero of someone else. And you have to understand that if you want to heal society, if justice has this role of uh, trying to bring back uh, society together, you have to consider those different narratives. You have to consider those gray area and try uh, yeah, to, to have a broader understanding and things are not so black and white, as, as Massa said. Thank you both very, very much for uh, for taking part uh, today. I think it's been a really interesting discussion. So thank you for making making the time on a Saturday morning, in your case, Massa, and on a snowy Saturday afternoon, in your case, Emmanuel. Thank you to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It was definitely a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, send your mailing address, and I'm going to mail you a copy of Sergio. Thank you very much. We'll be looking out for that. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. Asymmetrical Haircuts is presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has obviously been recorded at home, but we'd still like to give a shout-out to our regular host, Humanity Hub, and we hope to return there soon. Music was by audionautics.com. We're available on all major podcast apps. Give us a rating and spread the word.